0: And welcome back to the Indie, the podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. Usually, turns out this
1: is very not strong tea. Oh, that's
0: very- <laughs> you want some not strong tea? I would love some not strong tea. <laughs> is a universal experience it's considered the core to the family unit to humanity it brings people together around a table for dinner food can make you overjoyed with happiness and the simple smell of it can bring back memories from deep within your mind how can one thing have so much variety involve so many opinions and have such a big impact on our daily lives well that's why this week on the Indie, we're exploring the santa barbara community through food In that first clip you heard Elizabeth Poet, 7th generation cattle rancher who runs Rancho San Julian in Lompoc. I visited her at her ranch to discuss her farm to table style feasts and her new TV show on the Magnolia Network. Hi! (laughs) Welcome! No, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I just want to start out and talk about the history of the ranch. I mean it's been around since the Presidio era, 1800s. Yes. Yes. So what is it like kind of continuing your family's legacy after generations of cattle ranchers?
1: It feels... well I mean the ranch was granted to my great-great-great-great-grandfather Jose de la Guerra back in 1837. Um, And it's been in the family ever since. Um, It's gone through a lot of changes throughout the years Mm -hmm. and kind of bringing it to um, kind of a more modern era, but still keeping the old traditions alive. Um, So I think I find myself that I'm just a part of that history and we're just kind of constantly thinking, though, about the future. And, you know, it's not like a five-year plan. This Mm -hmm. is a many, many, many... Generational plan, Mm -hmm. you know, and so that's how I I think about it. Yeah, you know, we're just kind of part of it Yeah,
0: so I know that cattle ranching and and being a rancher I guess and you know curator Mm -hmm. almost it's uh, can be a little hard to sustain Uh So I guess what has made this ranch sustainable after all these years?
1: I think um, Our family has made it sustainable. I think that we have really worked together, which is hard um, as families grow and change, um, so I would definitely say the work of our family and working together, um, and trying to bring a love for this place. I mean, I think it, I think it just continues with that same tradition of, you know, my parents' parents were thinking about it for their children, and now and my parents were thinking about it for our generation, and now we're thinking about it for the next generation. Mm-hmm. So sustainability. Is you know it's a hot word it's a word that really resonates with us and that it's something that it's just how we live how we have to to be able to keep the ranch in the family to be able to keep um, you know the these you know beautiful places that we can see and are not developed and yeah. you know are working working the land yeah.
0: And I see we're sitting under this yes. beautiful canopy. Yes. This is where you hold your gatherings mm-hmm. over summers where people can come and have meals. So what's your whole goal in bringing local food to the people of Santa Barbara when they come here?
1: Well, I started doing farmer's markets. I started Rancho San Beef back in... Um, and so almost about fifteen years ago. Can't do the math. And um, I was at all the farmers markets. I was going to LA, Santa Monica. I was going to um, Santa Barbara. And um, one of the things throughout the years that I really noticed is that there was a real want for connection to where the food is coming from, and not just getting to talk to me at the farmer's market and having that sort of connection, but people really wanted to come and see where the animals grew. Mm -hmm. And so what I really wanted to do with, the ranch table was that people could come and actually have an experience not only being able to experience this place but also be able to experience food and so being able to you know we've had a strawberry where we pick strawberries and then we jam them and then we always end with a beautiful meal under this arbor this arbor's been it's about 150 years old right now it's a beautiful shade of purple with our wisteria i find this this part of the ranch just really a special place, really almost a magical place at times, but being able to bring people actually to the ranch and be able to show them that real connection to food, getting their hands dirty and having that be a real connection. And so that's what I started doing and, um, and it's been going well. Yeah. 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 We've had beautiful events where people can come and, you know, picking apricots and, or pickles and we've made quick pickles and just, being able to bring people onto the ranch and having that real connection yeah
0: well and that leads me to my next question about your show yes which is to table on the magnolia network yeah. and checking it out and i guess because these gatherings are more about what you can bring to the local santa barbara community uh-huh. what do you want to show about the santa barbara community to the rest of the world right. through this show
1: i mean the show is a whole other exciting adventure and for me it's just on a bigger level, I'm able to hopefully um, inspire and connect people with food in that same way. Um, it's been so much fun being able to work with them because it really is true to what we're doing here and what we're trying to um, accomplish. And um, and it's been fun. It's, it's really kind of, you know, really focusing on all the work that goes into ranching. It's not just... Mm-hmm getting on the horse and riding through the hillsides, you know, which sounds so lovely. (laughs) Um, But, you know, there's a lot of work involved. Mm -hmm. And and so to be able to share that with not just our small community, um, who I love, but also in a way getting to showcase um, what a huge food community this is, mm-hmm. really. I mean, Santa Barbara County, it's it's really amazing. And agriculture. And it's such it's an ag- huge, Yeah, yeah. It's, it's huge. So being able to kind of showcase that has been really fun. The Magnolia Network wanted um, to showcase agriculture, mm-hmm. to be honest. Um, it was really exciting to me that...
0: Something new for them. Something yeah. new,
1: yeah, and being able to... And, and in a beautiful way, you know, and in a meaningful way. And I was really amazed and i I think that i'm very proud of the show i think that it really showcases what agriculture is really about and you know there's ranchers all over the country who are doing this that are keeping it in their family that are raising animals i think it's so good for the environment and so good for you know having these families that are keeping this agriculture alive in our country yeah
0: well, tell me about some of the things that you've made at these gatherings. What have been some of your favorite dishes that you've kind of shared with people?
1: So some of my favorite events that we've had, we had this amazing um, music event where um, we had a wine tasting of a local um, winemaker. Mm. And then we went down into the old, old um, hay barn and had this like beautiful music oh, wow. and then had this gorgeous big meal underneath the arbor. And we do a lot of barbecuing, oh, um, which is really fun. We have these great big um, kind of Santa Maria style barbecues. So we do, you know, tons of veggies and chicken and beef and, you know, all sorts of things mm-hmm. on the grill. And so I, I love I love cooking on a grill. I love cooking outside, yeah. so that has been really great for these events. And we have here we have two of them. So a lot of times we'll have appetizers on one, and then um, have on the main meal we'll have the the bigger one going. So so I've loved doing that. I've loved doing our uh, pickles class. We did a really fun quick pickles class where people could come and um, they actually picked produce that they used, and then we um, and then we made pickles, which was like. It was fun. just fun, yeah. you know, and yeah. people got to add in all their own spices, no, yeah. and, and it was really fun too because it's something that is so easy to do with kids at home. We had a great paella event. I mean, we've had so many different really fun events, and every time, I think people come and leave as friends. You yeah. know, they people come and we just make connections. And I've always believed, and I grew up this way, where you know, having a meal with people that you may not know I just feel like the conversations around food and around tables are the best mm-hmm. and I think people can relax and just really enjoy each other's company and regardless of um, beliefs or anything like everyone loves food
0: yeah so yeah what do you think is so appealing about the kind of you know the farm to table idea the ranch to table idea that kind of I mean, sprouted pretty recently, you know, in like mm-hmm. the last maybe 10, 15 years, it's been like a Jew yeah. of like some people like getting back to the yeah. uh, organic side of things, uh-huh. you know, after it's kind of been phased out of our everyday lives, you right. know, we don't go and gather our, our vegetables anymore in our gardens. No, nope, right. that's not the average thing to do anymore. Right. So what do you think is so appealing about coming to be at like a long table in the middle of like a beautiful, you know, ranch? Like yeah.
1: Outside. I think that people are really yearning for that. Mm-hmm. I think that the the feeling of connection and wanting to connect, and really be out outside, you know, and be out in fresh air, and um, that the sounds are like you know the dog barking or the wind going through the trees mm-hmm. or the birds, you know. I don't know. I mean, I think that we it, that all connects to all of us and being able to have that and I mean and and I think that that's what we're trying to do here is that it's old it's an old ranch and it's been run over the years that we've really given up a lot to keep this ranch and make sure that it's sustainable but it's a lot of work you know it's a lot of fence lines it's a lot of hot days it's a lot of dust it's a lot of work but That makes it that more special and that makes it that more important Mm -hmm. that we also hold on to these days too, Mm -hmm. where we can gather together, where we can get people together, where where we can get people to really acknowledge and really be able to be part of it. Mm -hmm. I think that the cool thing about this ranch, because it's been in our family for so long, Mm -hmm. people have come to events over the years and they have stories and they have memories and I love that, you know, I get emails a lot um, about how my great-grandfather used to work there or used to um, work the sheep there or, you know, I mean, this, it's just a big history yeah. and people feel connected and that's an amazing thing,
0: Yeah, you know. And I'm looking at this house behind me here. How old is this? Yeah, so the, house, yeah. the
1: house was built in three different sections, um, the early 1800s, the middle 1800s, and then the late 1800s. Oh, this wow. is the latest, uh, eight, the, the most recent is the late 1800s. <laughs> nice. um, and, you know, we keep it as it is. No one lives in the house. We want to make sure that it's, um, you know, kept this is really the headquarters is the heart of the ranch though where we you know we have our office and where everything happens out of here we have our horse uh, right across the street is where our horse um, barns are our hay barn Mm -hmm. this is kind of really the headquarters and where everything happens
0: now tell me a bit about cattle ranching that sounds like a topic that like not a lot of people really know about it's probably Mm -hmm. some nuance thinking about you know when we think about raising cattle and raising farms, people probably think of like middle of nowhere, California or middle, you know, like we're right next to Santa Barbara, which is one of the greatest, you know, Mm -hmm. music cities Mm -hmm. and, you know, metropolitan cities in California. So what is it like being near both a city, but also kind of having that farm life? So lucky. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah,
1: definitely. So lucky. Yeah, I think that I, um, I was really lucky and my parents, you know, while I, while growing up, they wanted me to be in both of those worlds Mm -hmm. and that was very important that I saw not just the ranch life Mm -hmm. um which we love dearly and you know we live here and I grew up on the ranch but you know I think my parents also wanted me to make sure that I had this love for the arts and music and Mm -hmm. everything I mean I I danced flamenco for years and years and um is something different and I think that that was always important for my family and I'm really happy I did and you know and I went away for many years um, to college and lived in New York after college for a while and I just I think that that was really important because I was you know living in a hole of an apartment and I came back in March uh, you know and it was still freezing in, in New York and I came back and um, went on a ride with my dad and I was like, what am I doing? Yeah. Like, I need to be working here. This is what I want for my life. This is, um, but it was important for me to go away for a
0: while. Yes. You know, I was going to ask, did you always think this was just your destiny? Like you knew you were going to do this or did you kind of think like, maybe I'll like find yeah. something else and like it'll, someone else will take it about whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think my parents always tried to not have, um, the pressure of coming back mm-hmm. to the ranch but I'm sure there was a hope but it was something that um I felt like I was always I was always I always needed to come back here I mean this is my home Mm -hmm. and this is where I want to be and this is where I wanted to you know make a life and have ideas and what really um inspires me is is here
0: so looking to the future I mean we know that not only Lompoc, but all throughout Santa Barbara, there are so many different farms. Mm -hmm. Are you ever thinking of doing other collaborations with other farms who offer Mm -hmm. different kinds of products and doing a big, you know, group celebration or?
1: Yeah, we've definitely, we've done, um, and we've done some things like that, which has been really fun. Um, I mean, especially working with different winemakers. I mean, we're in it's ridiculous yeah what amazing um, wine we have here Mm -hmm. Um, so that has been really fun Um, we've done um, we've done different things I'm working with different a lot of vegetables we grow here in our in the garden but we work with a bunch of different farmers with these events we had a really fun event with the food bank and and that was bringing everybody here and we really focused on grass-fed beef and did a whole kind of discussion on that and and then had this big beautiful meal and it was really fun so I love being able to work with others Mm -hmm. that are um, you know have the same passions and are excited about the same things.
0: Well in our food systems in the United States have kind of been Uh, I wouldn't say on a downward trend, but we've grown into fast food in this mm -hmm. instant gratification era. Do you think that there will be a a point where people kind of revert back to a more, you know, organic, sustainable way? People Mm -hmm. will be searching for that again as the world, maybe COVID taught us something with the world slowing down.
1: Absolutely. I think there's a lot of sadness with COVID, but there's a lot of things to try to learn from, you know, and I think that... Absolutely, I felt that that was a time when people did have a moment of, like, you know, people were putting chicken coops in the back of their apartments. Yeah, planting gardens. And, you know, and I think that was amazing. The more that people, think, can connect with their food, it's going to be so much better for them and their children. And they're going to be better for the long run for us as humans in this world Mm -hmm. and connecting not only with our food, but the people And slowing down and sitting down and actually having a conversation at a table and not in front of the TV, you know, and being able to really um, just enjoy each other's company. So enjoy nature. Yeah, outside. outside And and so for the show, it's been great to be able to hopefully inspire others to, you know, slow down and.
0: Thank you for having me here for a little bit. I I was thinking we could go for
1: a quick little um, drive around and I could show you our bowls. I have to go check on our bowls. Oh yeah, let's do it. Yes,
0: let's go do that. Santa Barbara has fostered a culture that equally loves food and giving back to the community. And on April 14th, the Santa Barbara Rescue Mission is doing just that. As a part of their Easter feast, the Rescue Mission plans to provide over 300 homemade meals to the local homeless population. Reporting for the Indy, Jennifer Yoshikoshi sits down with Rolf Geiling, president of the Rescue Mission, for the story.
2: So can you tell me a little about the Santa Barbara Rescue Mission and how long this organization has been serving to help the homeless?
3: Sure. Well, the Rescue Mission was founded in 1965. So that makes us, what, uh, 57 years old. And uh, we are here in the community. I mean, there's kind of two major thrusts to our work the first is is that uh we are an on-ramp for anybody who is finding themselves in crisis without food to eat um or a place to sleep 365 nights a year we run an emergency shelter uh where just no questions asked anybody can come in and receive assistance and that is we're the only place between santa santa maria and ventura that does that 365 nights a year and what we've realized is with all the different services taking place in the community that are reaching out to the homeless, um, we need to have a place where people can just get started and so we're that on ramp uh, just by providing basic help then we build relationships and hopefully network people into you know some of the agencies that can really help them with whatever their particular situation is. The other thing we do is we run a 12-month drug and alcohol treatment program Um, in our history we just discovered that one of the primary causes and issues the homeless community deals with is substance abuse. And so uh, it's not the only cause, but we've realized that one of the ways we can really help the population is to come up with a, you know, really focus on this need and come up with a compassionate and comprehensive way of dealing with that. So we offer a 12 month treatment program that sees people, um, you know, into recovery.
2: Yeah, and as many of us can see on the streets everywhere around the world, homelessness is a nationwide problem. But specifically in Santa Barbara, how would you rate the severity of the homeless crisis here?
3: Well, on the one hand, I mean, you can look at it two ways. I would say we are fortunate in that we are a geographically limited community, uh in a way we're kind of like an island with kind of just uh buffers of kind of space no matter where you come so we have a limited population and so there you know i was just um in portland over the weekend and boy you talk about just some of these urban centers that are really dealing with large populations of of, uh of the homeless uh it's a really vexing problem because you just think even just from driving through a community like los angeles or san francisco you'll think wow that's just how do you even come up with uh enough places for people to be safely and humanely kept so on the one hand santa barbara has a smaller population which we're grateful for and on the other hand um homelessness is desperation and being homeless in santa barbara is just you know it's not much easier than being homeless anywhere else in the world you know it's desperation is desperation no matter what the surrounding is
2: Yeah, and you mentioned before that from Venture to Santa Maria, the Santa Barbara rescue mission is the only organization to serve the homeless with hot food and shelter every day of the year. How many people does the organization provide to every year, and do you see that number increasing.
3: Um, You know, boy, that's a good question off the top of my head. uh, Gosh, I don't have a uh, we can I don't have a specific number that we help in all our programs um, you know, on a nightly basis, uh, in full operation, not assuming COVID there's 20, uh, there's 200 people under a roof, uh, in all of our programs. So, I mean, the number is probably in terms of unique individuals, I'll say roughly, you know, 4,000, 5,000 people. Um, I would say, um, you know, the population certainly isn't getting smaller. It is, you know, it is steadily going up in California and we're seeing incremental, uh increases as well here in Santa Barbara. Uh, but again, fortunately not as, you know, not as drastic a number as, I mean, if we look at a point in time count, there are very they're kind of single digit percentage increases, but nothing astronomical. But it's not going away, that's for sure. And one of the things that concerns us more than anything is the acuity of the circumstances in which people find themselves. That we're seeing really deep mental illness and uh you know physical affliction, things like that. So You know, whereas we may not see an explosion in cases, individual cases are really challenging.
2: And I know that you're providing all of these hot meals to um, the homeless around the area and you host annual feasts. Um, Can you tell me about the Easter feast being hosted this Thursday? Sure,
3: sure. Um, Well, holidays are special to us, especially as a Christian organization. The events on the Christian calendar, such as Christmas and Easter, are really important to us. Uh, because of who we are as our legacy but to anybody you know it is difficult to be homeless any time of the year but especially in holidays there's a it's just a little bit it can be a little bit more challenging as people realize you know holiday comes and you're not where you want to be in the situation you want to be in you're not with the people you want to be so we tend to see those as really special opportunities to extend grace to people to do something a little bit special um, a lot of people in our community, typically there's a lot of our donors and volunteers that like to make helping others part of their holiday celebration. That's been a little bit limited uh, since COVID, but um, it's just, I think for us, we kind of see it as this really neat on where we're just caring for people and uh, just communicating God's care and love to them. And we do see that, you know, one of the reasons we do it is obviously just, not just because it's a humane thing to do, but because it serves as an on-ramp As we want to see people come into our recovery program and to seek help a lot of times you only people will only trust you with that if you've built a relationship and so serving them a meal and just showing them care often you know is is just the place that process starts.
2: Yeah, I definitely love to see how you're developing that trust with the community so that you can help them in the future. Um, but with this being an annual event, I want to know how you prepare for the amount of food that's needed to get ready and what types of food are typically being served?
3: Well, our we have a kitchen manager and a kitchen team and the clients in our recovery program all work in the kitchen. And so they will start, you know, the Easter feast is well known for uh we have an easter ham and potatoes and vegetables and uh um you know different choices of yummy dessert and uh our kitchen manager starts you know weeks ahead of time we procure donations people in the community um are right now dropping off hams and uh that we can cook and other things i think on our website has a list of items that we're still looking for for the meal and uh yeah and so the preparation process you know it's a uh, it, it starts probably, you know, I mean, once we get the ingredients, we start cooking up to a week in, ahead of time, depending on what kind of an audience we're expecting. But uh, it's it's a lot of fun. And it, what, what makes holidays special is the amount of time we spend preparing food for people we love.
2: And other than providing food and shelter, how does the rescue mission help people in need out of homelessness?
3: Uh, well, there's, you know, we have, I mean, as I, we are, Certainly an on ramp. I mean, one of the things that we're doing and providing basic help is trying to build relationships with people. And if we can bring them into our facility, help them stabilize, we can start to work on what their specific issues would be. We have a homeless guest services team that networks well with other community providers and organizations. Um, one of the things we do is called a neighborhood navigation center where we just have the facility open and different agencies there so that we can help people, whether they need documents, whether they need some physical ailments checked out and where they need to kind of check in with a mental health provider. So we're just helping people start to put some of the blocks together that might lead to more stability and moving out of homelessness. And then, in addition to doing that, then, you know, as our recovery program is something that, you know, one of the things we've landed on is we can refer people to other organizations if they're dealing with a substance abuse issue. Um, And that is a major contributor to their life of homelessness or institutionalization. Our 12 month recovery program is uh, a pretty remarkable way that people kind of start taking steps toward appropriate autonomy within the community.
2: Well, it's amazing to hear about how many resources that you provide for that community. How do you outreach to the community to get them available so that you can help them?
3: You know, Homelessness in Santa Barbara is, we're not the only organization that is trying to work in this space and help people. And that's really important to realize that there's no one organization that can do everything. And so our community will be most effective if we're able to work as a network. And so there are different agencies that are doing park outreach and there's different, uh, and everything from nonprofit agencies to healthcare providers, to law enforcement, people are out there kind of uh, befriending and trying to care for the homeless population and then figuring out you know kind of helping steer them toward the resources they might need so that's the first thing is that you know we have different different community providers different uh, law enforcement public safety individuals that are always kind of steering people toward the rescue mission and then when they come with us a lot of times somebody may they may just kind of come because they need a place to sleep but um if they'd like to stay with us longer, we grant them an extension and as part of the extension, what they're doing is they, you know, it, it kind of involves them in case management because if somebody wants an extension, they have to kind of talk about why they need it. And then it helps us start to work on goals with them. And sometimes the goals can just, be, I mean, sometimes people need a lot of help and a lot, they're gonna need a lot of support uh, because they've undergone pretty severe trauma. Um, and so, you know, for, for us, Uh, Unfortunately, one of the things that's really hard about working with the homeless community is sometimes there's a huge loss of dignity that has just been, you know, that's the result of trauma and pain and struggle. And so we're even just trying to return people to a place of dignity where they kind of would want something different than what they have. And then they just understand they're worth it.
2: Yeah, it's great to hear how not only are you helping them physically, but you're also helping them with their mental state as well. Sure. Uh, But to just wrap this interview up, is there any particular memory or experience you've had with the homeless that you'd like to share?
3: I mean, it's challenging because obviously homelessness is disturbing. When we think of the more visual kind of uh, reminders of it, you know, probably everybody in Santa Barbara, everybody living in California, um, has had, you know, just... really unfortunate exposure to people who are living in circumstances that we don't find acceptable. And it's very hard to get callous about that, uh, or not to get callous about that, but to realize that what we're dealing with there is a human being. And we don't really have a typical client at the rescue mission. uh, But the one kind of most recent or the most kind of consistently cited thing I hear in their stories is trauma. And whether that trauma was they're victims of it, or it was self-inflicted as a compassionate society, we respond to that and we meet that with empathy. And so that to me is just, uh, it's really important to remember that when we're dealing with, um, as I'm reminded, as I kind of interact with our clients is just to be reminded that every one of these is a human being. There's somebody's daughter or somebody's son and And that then encourages us to see transformation. That's what I think is so remarkable is if you see this army of people at the rescue mission and other agencies just simply reaching out and treating people with uh, humaneness and compassion, the transformation that can take place. And we see people in our community now that are housed, that are walking miracles, uh, really people that, you know, I think if you ask law enforcement. Um, You know, there are people there. They said that person will never, you know, they'll die on the streets. And now we see them living, you know, on their own, and they have cars and they have jobs, and um, and that is extremely gratifying. There's a lot of effort that goes into that, but obviously, uh, we believe human beings are worth that effort.
2: Yeah. Wow. It's amazing to hear about all those stories that you just talked about. Is there anything else that you'd like to add for our audience to hear? Um, Maybe some information about the Easter feast?
3: Sure. Well, the Easter feast, I'm not, uh, you know, the Easter feast is going to take place around the holidays. I'm not quite sure what the volunteer need is. Um, So I would encourage people to check our website or to make contact before they come down. We typically have a very strong response from volunteers more than we can use. Good news is, is that we serve dinner every night of the year. And so there's always opportunities for people to come down and help. Um, What's really special about the rescue mission is that we are 100% donor supported, we receive no municipal or government funding. So everything we do happens simply because people in the community believe it should happen and they give generously of their time and their resources. So um, that to me is, you know, we're, we're, uh, you know, you can look at our work, work as that of an agency, but what we really are, are the compassionate people of faith in the community who care for people and are reaching out. And so any, op- any opportunity we have to communicate with an audience like yours is just a chance to uh, remind people of that and to thank them for the role that they play in making sure that the homeless and the addicted have a place to turn in our community.
0: Wine is something that has made a big impact on Santa Barbara's agricultural sector and social scene. The Central Coast region's wine heritage dates back more than 200 years, but is still being shaped by newcomers in the industry to this day. The Independence new Food and Wine Fellowship writer, Vanessa Vinn, is a founding member of the Hughes Society Central Coast Chapter, a community that fosters education and access to wine for individuals of color. So, Vanessa, could you please start off and tell me about your background and your experience as a woman of color paving her path in the wine industry? Thanks for asking, Molly. I'd love to.
4: It's actually just really an honor to be able to share my story in my community. That's kind of the whole point of me being here today. I started off born and raised in Santa Barbara, a Loke, and really just kind of my curiosity for wine was sparked while working as a nanny in town. And after A few months of of studying, I took my first course through the quartermaster sommeliers, the intro course, and kind of started looking for positions as a tasting room host in Santa Barbara's funk zone. And when I didn't have any luck with that, I decided to sort of take a leap. It was right around the time when COVID first started kind of becoming a reality for pretty much everyone, small business owners. Um, wine tasting rooms, wineries alike. And I decided to sort of look towards Napa because despite COVID and the shutdown and everything happening, Harvest was still going to happen, whether or not there was a shutdown. So someone still needed to be making the vintage of 2020. And I decided that would be me. I ended up getting a job in Napa as a Harvest intern. And that's pretty much where my story of wine kind of took off.
0: Yeah. So it really does kind of start there. I mean, you just break off and move up there. What was that experience like and what made you want to continue this journey within the wine community to get where you are
4: now? Honestly, the experience in Napa, and I talk about this a lot in the article, it was like pretty, I felt pretty vulnerable because it was probably for a lot of people. 2020 was probably the hardest year that they've ever experienced. So, I know I'm not alone in saying that, but I think it was my first time moving to a place where I didn't know anybody, not a single soul. I rented a room, I found the room, um actually really luckily other than my roommate who was is very much not in the wine industry or wine trade. I didn't know anybody and um so it was challenging and actually it was kind of the what sort of made me think of is maybe what it would might be like to move to, I mean, I was just moving up north to Northern California, but it it kind of feels like another country, but what it might be like to move from another country or move from somewhere where you don't know anybody. And then Napa kind of experienced one of its, I mean, 2017, they had pretty substantial fires. Um, And then 2020 was, again, the the whole valley was pretty much ablaze. And we were, in Napa, we were pretty much surrounded um, to the northeast. Calistoga was on fire. Sonoma was spared. Luckily, harvest was spared where I was making wine. But all around us, there were fires everywhere. So to be in that sort of environment and not know anybody was really challenging for me. And I didn't have anybody I could like go get a drink with after work or, you know, who I could really share, I guess, my experience and my kind of struggles with, which is sort of where I, why I decided to express myself through social media and kind of blog and write. And
0: that's kind of how that got going. And I know you write in your story that you kind of recognize this gap about accessibility to wine and wine culture in the community there. So you recently started a local chapter of the Hughes Society, which opened in February of 2021, still getting its legs. But can you tell me about the concept of this educational space and its origins where you got this idea from? Absolutely.
4: So. Um, What opened in February 2021 was the Northern California chapter of the Hughes Society. Started off in Napa, and we call that the Hughes Society Northern Cali Iris Rideau, um, named after Iris Rideau, the Black woman who owns Rideau Vineyards in San Inez Valley. So she actually helped sponsor our Northern California chapter. And we started off with about four people who are interested in making a tasting, a BIPOC-centered tasting group a reality. And from there, we grew to just about over 40 people. And we got so big that we even started drawing interest from some people who live in Santa Barbara County. So Simone Mitchelson, she is, you know, she lives in Los Olivos and she is one of the founding members of Natural Action Wine Club, which is a, a wine subscription box that the proceeds go towards a, a viticulture and analogy scholarship for a BIPOC student at UC Davis, so she's a member of the Hugh Society chapter of Northern California, as well as Tara Gomez and Mireya Teribo, who are winemakers at Dreams to Dreams in Lompoc. And Tara Gomez is the winemaker for Kita Wines, which unfortunately had to close last month. But she is also based in um, Lompoc, and she's also a member of the Northern California chapter. So. After I moved back from Napa to Santa Barbara, we sort of all were discussing how we should have a chapter for Santa Barbara County and the Central Coast.
0: Now, how do you think accessibility to wine and wine tastings and the culture surrounding wine through the Hughes Society has impacted or will impact the greater Santa Barbara area and the local BIPOC community? Well, I'm glad you asked
4: because before leaving Santa Barbara, I actually didn't know there was a BIPOC community and maybe there's, we're here, we're definitely here, but maybe we just haven't formed community because we haven't necessarily been visible. A lot of times I find community with, and Mm. I call the BIPOC community that I was a part of a NAPA, my people, like I find my people a lot of times are not necessarily front front of house or client facing. Sometimes they're the back of the house. Sometimes they're in the kitchens. Sometimes they're in production or in the cellars. And so I think visibility has a huge component of the Hue Society. We're making ourselves seen, we're coming together, we're celebrating our cultures, our diversity, our intersectionality. And I think just being visible is one thing. I mean, you're going to see us on State Street having one, our quarterly chapter tastings visible for all to see. So people, I think, a lot of times think Uh, when they don't see representation or see people that look like them in certain spaces, wine being one of them, that's pretty notorious for being a, a space that's not necessarily welcoming. I think when you do start to see that representation, you start to feel more safe and more secure and and welcomed. And that is just a, you know, kind of a small, a small portion of what the Hughes Society sort of represents for the BIPOC community. It also just kind of represents the cookout, the barbecue, the, the gathering place where we can all be ourselves. We can all come together around a glass of wine assimilation is not required. The, the founder and um, sort of person behind all of the Hue Society, her name is Tahira Habibi. She's an Atlanta-based sommelier. And that's sort of the, I guess, slogan for the Hue Society. Assimilation not required, meaning that you do not have to code switch. You do not have to pretend to be somebody you're not. You can take off your jacket and you can really just chop it up around a glass of wine with your fellow chapter members, and that's really the beauty of the Hue Society. Um, along with our sponsors, our, our hosts who provide tastings, um, people who donate wine, are off also oftentimes oper- offering a lot of opportunity within the Hue Society network. So we have monthly virtual tastings. Last month, we had Louis Latour, which is a pretty well-known domain in Burgundy, um, making Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and they donated wine for us to taste. We had a masterclass with the owner of Chateau Corton Grancy. And so we kind of, I and we have tastings like that um, virtually almost, you know, monthly in addition to our chapter meetings. And then we also have happy hours where different people from the industry kind of talk about what's going on and just kind of relax. And oftentimes, you're getting opportunities through there. Like if somebody needs a, a waiter or a sommelier, or if somebody's looking for somebody in a, a winemaking assistant or a winemaker or a cellar master, those job opportunities come up a lot in our happy hour meetings, just casually. So there's a lot of room for kind of accessibility
0: and just opportunity. Wonderful. I see you have a bottle there that you've been waiting to try to pop open. So whenever that opens, <laughs> <laughs> you did. <laughs> That's so awesome. I think I was
4: waiting a little too long with my hand over it. The pressure was building. Oh my
0: gosh. Yeah. That's great.
4: So I'm having um, it's called Mercat is the name of the cuve, and it's a cava. So it's um Periata, Zarello, and Macabeo. They're the three grapes that make up a Cava and it's from a a subscription service called We Drink Bubbles. So they only do different sparkling wines, whether it's champagne or sparkling wine from California or
0: Cava or Prosecco. So the more, you know, that's cool. Yeah. And those wine subscription services, how do you (laughs) feel about those? I mean, as someone who's in the industry, are they usually pretty good? I think
4: it's a great concept and I just love this This is like a woman-owned business that I happened to come across while I was working for CoGod, And, you know, I have a few clients that, you know, only drink rosé or only drink red wine or, and so why not, if there's a space for bubbles, why not have a subscription service that caters to people who love those? They're not always easy to find, or maybe you get stuck in a rut, always trying the same thing. So subscription services are a great option for people who want diversity and who want to mix it up, but don't know where to begin.
0: Well, to close out, I know you want to probably have a glass of wine and, you know, have a nice night to yourself, but just for you personally, who has been one of the greatest, you know, mentors during your time learning about wine? Honestly, I've
4: had so many mentors and I think that's the beauty of One of the most beautiful things about wine, it's the first space or industry where there are actual like mentors are a thing in the wine industry. So you kind of have to have them as a sommelier. If you're going through the quartermaster SOM, if you're going to get your anywhere past certified sommelier level, you're going to, they actually require you to have a mentor to do a stage. If you're going to work in a restaurant, you do what's called a stage. So you, you work kind of like as an intern to make sure that you vibe with the team and you get assigned a mentor. It's part of sort of um, working in the wine industry. So I've had a few, I'm also obviously writing. So I've had writing mentors, um, Christina Rasmussen. She is a London-based wine writer, and she has a, a wine shop called Little Wine. She's helped me with my with my writing, with editing, with pitching um, stories for publication as a freelancer. And Matt Ketman, who I am now, who is now my editor at The Independent. I met him through working for Jim Gordon um, of Wine Enthusiasts, who Matt also is a writer for. So he's doesn't know it because he didn't really sign up to be a mentor for me, but he is a mentor because of his vast experience. I learned so much. I just really gleaned so much just by the way that he and I work together. And also Matt Co- Max Kogod. So I was able to do an internship with Kogod Wine Merchants and, you know, ended up working for Max. And he really taught me the ins and outs of wine retail, buying, uh, marketing, and was able to really taste my first kind of vintage wines through working at his shop in what's called the vertical. So tasting different wines from different years. And when you start to get to do that, you really start to be able to see the difference between different bottles and what makes one more pricey than the other? What makes one more valuable than the other? So it's kind of special to do that because we talk about barriers a lot. Cost is a huge barrier to accessing wine. And without sort of the funds to be able to buy vintage
0: bottles, it's really not a, it's not, it's not easy to taste a lot of wine. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, it's, that's the whole point of, you know, what you're trying to do is the accessibility to wine is something that you're trying to make universal through your work in the Hugh society and your writing so I, i really appreciate you coming on here and sharing your story it was wonderful getting to know you and i'm so happy you're part of the independent team too which is wonderful to have another friendly face come on the show and chat about their work and their writing and their life well is there anything you'd like to add about your future, the future of your writing, next steps. I mean, what are you what are you looking forward to next?
4: Thank you, Molly. Thanks for taking the time to interview me. I, I really am looking forward to building community with all of you who are listening and building community in Santa Barbara, which I never really knew I had before um, coming back and being exposed to the wine industry in Napa. So I really look forward to really starting this wine community here in Santa Barbara and, and being a part of it. And hopefully it grows and flourishes into something that's much bigger than than we ever could have imagined, including the Central Coast. So, San Luis Obispo, where are you at? Lompoc, where are you at? Ventura, Orkut, Santa Maria. Let's all come together. I think it's time. We're all here. Let's 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 come together.
0: Yeah, Central Coast, all united. Well, thank you so much, Vanessa, for coming on the show once again. I really appreciate it. And check out the article on The Independent. It's up already. So go and check that out if you'd like to learn more about the full story. It's kind of a sneak peek. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Molly. Cheers. Once again, I'm Molly McEnany, host of The Indie. Tune in next week for another episode.